Money Talk is hosted by Annex Wealth Management, a registered investment advisor. Important information about the qualifications and business practices of Annex to be considered before becoming a client of Annex is available at AnnexWealth.com. Securities are offered through HBEC Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Annex Wealth Management and HBEC are unaffiliated. This program may contain forward-looking statements which may not come true. Please consult with an advisor about your specific situation. Taking the mystery out of investing with answers to your financial questions. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald from Annex Wealth Management on WTMJ. Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management for Saturday, September 29th. I'm Danny Clayton. I'm just glad we're on a 15-second delay. In fact, I'm going to increase it to 30-second delay. You guys talking about your fantasy football, all right? Can we get to business? No, no, no. I mean, there was a lot of news. There was We did talk about fantasy football, which is kind of silly compared to all of the news that was happening this week. It was really unbelievable. Of course, the Supreme Court nominee was front and center and consumed most of the news, but there was a lot of other things going on on and one of the things that that happens is uh, that Tesla uh, made the news in a big way mark and uh, that was big news and we'll come back to that but what is really what we're focused on here is what's happening here at the end of the quarter sure we've come to the end of the quarter now and we look back at September and we say what kind of quarter was it and the S&P 500 had its best quarter in the last five years so things continue to move forward six months in a row the S&P 500 has been up so, Derek, I think you have to look at that, and we always talk about it on this show, you know, have we gotten to the point where it's either too late or we don't expect that the market's going to continue to go forward? Mark, there's an old market saw that money follows earnings, and this year earnings for the S&P 500 have been spectacular, over 20% earnings growth in the first and second quarters, looking for like numbers in the third and fourth quarter. And basically what's happened is the market is sort of digesting those earnings after having expanded in the prior five years on multiple expansion. So when I look at the stock market and I see six months up in a row, I'm not really that surprised given how well corporate America has been doing. And we look at these earnings, uh, not just the, this past quarter, but going forward, the estimates for next quarter are again solid. That's right, Dave. We're looking for another 20% up quarter, probably be closer to 25% when all said and done. Uh, the one thing I would caution investors, though, is that you know, with the end of the quarter comes earnings season, and with, and with earnings season comes the quiet period. And one of the things that's fueled a lot of the advance in stocks has been buyback activity on the part of corporations. I think that's really interesting. I think that's something to talk about because we talk on the air a lot about what do companies do with the profits at the end of the day. One of the things that they do is they buy their own stock back. Why do companies do that? Because there's less stock in circulation at that point in time, so their earnings goes farther, their earnings per share goes up. But this quiet period that you're talking about, Derek, it's really mandated. It's a regulatory function where companies cannot buy their own stock back within a period of time before they announce their next earnings. And we're moving on that date. I think October 5th, like 86% of the companies in the S&P 500 get into that quiet period. So we start to see that buyback slowing down and stopping. And that's been something that's been moving stock prices forward. That's right. And I think, you know, if you recall, you know, in January, we had a fairly strong start to the month, and then it closed very weak. And that was basically because you had an absence of corporate buyers. The other thing that I think investors need to focus on, too, in the in the coming weeks is, is what are earnings revisions doing? We know the S&P earnings are going to be up 20% plus in the third quarter, likely also in the fourth quarter. But directionally, lately, earnings estimates have come down somewhat. So perhaps some of this uncertainty about tariffs, about dysfunction in Washington, 
Washington, the midterm election is affecting uh, analysts and their expectations concerning future profits. So one number that wasn't revised this week was the GDP number, and that's a healthy 4.2%. Right, still a healthy 4.2, and the Atlanta Fed is looking for another 4% quarter this time. So when you look at the growth of the economy, that's GDP. When you look at earnings, that's the growth of companies that make up the S&P 500. Both of those things are positive. Employment's been good. Wage inflation a little muted, and inflation's not run away. So what it really leads to next is the question about what happened this week with the Fed and what might happen with the Fed going forward. Mark, to the surprise of no one, the Fed raised rates a quarter point on Wednesday. Uh, they did remove the word accommodative from their policy statement, which I thought was somewhat significant. And then Chairman Powell, who's very transparent, much more transparent than more recent Fed chairman, he really did discuss the fact the economy is very strong, the labor market is solid, and he expects that rates will continue to rise not just this year, but next year as well. When you look at what we're doing then, you know, we raised rates here in September. There's a high expectation for December, and you hear the, the phrase dot plot. You start thinking about what's going to happen in 2019 and 2020. The dot plot originally was for four rate raises in 2019. We might not get there. No, the current dot plot suggests three rate raises. The Fed Funds Futures Market is discounting two rate raises next year and one more this year. So basically what we're left with is is a Fed that's going to be watching the data, watching the effect of tariffs potentially on inflation, watching the effect of tariffs on business confidence, watching business confidence generally, and and really just try to normalize interest rates. Right now, the the rate is still accommodative because if you think about it, in the past, when the Fed funds rate gets to 2% above the rate of inflation, that's restrictive. Right now, we're basically in line. Derek Felsky, Chief Investment Officer. We're going to take a break. Mark, uh, Retirement Roadmap, we've got one coming up next Thursday, and it's going to be at uh, the Lake Country Branch. Yeah, October 4th, 6 p.m., Retirement Roadmap is probably our most popular workshop that we do. It's interactive. It's not a sales presentation. If you're new to Annex and you want to learn a little bit more about what we do and our philosophies on retirement planning, come and join us. Lake Country, 83 and 94, 6 p.m., and you can get there by AnnexWealth.com. Hit that Events tab. Get yourself signed up. Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, WTMJ. Spreading the wealth every Saturday. Here's more Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. It's Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, Saturday, September 29th. I'm Danny Clayton. Derek Felsky is here. So is Dave Spano and Mark Oswald. And today's question is what to do about Elon. Yeah, Elon Musk, uh, the founder of Tesla, amongst other things, uh, has been making lots of lots of news. Uh, and most recently, one of, the, one of the things that got him in trouble was a tweet. Go figure that. And so he tweeted that he had a buyer at a certain price, and that you can't do as a public statement of a CEO. Well, it's really interesting to see how Twitter has gotten into the, the mainstream and, and how dangerous it can be in what you tweet, right? So in this case, Elon Musk tweeted out that he was going to take his company, Tesla, private, at $420 per share when it sold for less than that. So there was a premium of about 20% based on that stock price at that point in time. The thing that gets him in trouble, though, is he said the funding for that purchase was secured. And it turns out that that was not probably a true statement. It, it might be something that he felt was going to happen, but he probably didn't have the funding in place. So you think about a buyer of that stock at that price thinking he's going to get $420 a share under the premise that he has funding in place, and then the funding evaporates. So he's got some problems with the SEC for sure. Well, the SEC sued him, and so you know, he certainly has problems when the SEC sues you. That's not something you would like. 
know, what I'd like to talk about and the questions that we're hearing, Derek, for certain, is what are our expectations for 2019? We certainly covered that earnings look good, again, coming up in the next quarter. But then we talk about 2019 post-election and, more importantly, what the earnings expectations are next year. With the investment team and, and on the investment committee, we've talked a lot about how the stock market's likely to react to slowing economic growth. Uh, slowing corporate profits next year and the like. And what we found is that typically the markets perform reasonably well as long as earnings continue to grow, not necessarily at the rate they grew in 2018, but say grow, say, in the mid mid, mid to high single digits, uh, stocks tend to perform in line with that. So our expectation for 2019 is reasonably good. Of course, the two things we always worry about is whether the Fed makes a mistake, tightens too aggressively, or we get some sort of geopolitical surprise like a spike in oil prices. Just to clean that up a little bit, Derek, we're, we're not thinking that earnings are going to slow down. We're talking about the growth rate of earnings. We're, we're not saying that companies are going to earn less in 2019. They'll earn more potentially, but it's just not growing as fast. So, Derek, we talked a little bit about, you know, the Fed possibly making a mistake and, and really breaking the momentum of the markets by tightening perhaps too fast or, or whatever it might be. I think that's really important for investors, people listening this morning, to understand what it means, not only to their mortgage rate, to their credit card rates and those kinds of things, but when we're talking about investments, what happens as the Fed starts to tighten rates to various parts of the asset classes? On the stock side, to the degree that the Fed raises interest rates, you'll start to see interest costs start to rise on corporate balance sheets, so that can reduce earnings growth. It may be because wages are increasing, so labor costs, a percentage of revenues are growing on corporate balance sheets, which eventually leads to a reduction in, in profit margins. And one of the strengths of this recovery and the strength in the stock market has been driven by record margins at, on the corporate level. Let me switch gears just a little bit. And, you know, we are now 10 years after the failure of Lehman Brothers, and people haven't seen a market downturn in a decade. Uh, what is your expectations of what a market downturn and what investors should, should be prepared for? Well, I personally believe that the next market downturn will basically lead to a recession as opposed to a recession leading to a market downturn. So, you know, we talk a lot at Annex with our clients about a balanced portfolio, about rebalancing. So, for example, if someone had a portfolio from 2009 and has done nothing to their overall asset allocation, it's pretty safe to say that that equity piece of that overall portfolio allocation is heavily weighted to U.S. stocks, which have dramatically outperformed international equity markets over the last nine years. And there's a lot of people that have scars left from 2008, 2009, even longer-term investors from other markets. You know, when you go 10 years in a row with up markets, it's easy to forget about your risk tolerance because those days could return. So when you talk about rebalancing, it's also a good time to reassess where you're at from a risk standpoint. You've aged 10 years. Things have moved forward in your life for 10 years. Things might be different, you know, depending on what the dynamics of your family are, your goals or your dreams. So rebalancing and reassessing risk right now would be appropriate. And we talk about this with all of our clients when it pertains to retirement planning. The reason I bring that up is because we're going to have a conversation coming up in Lake Country. Yeah, and it's one of our most popular, that retirement roadmap, October 4th, 6 p.m. at our Lake Country office on Highway 83 and 94, just south of the freeway. 
And uh, it's a great conversation because a lot of these are forever decisions, Social Security, pension, distribution strategies, minimizing taxes, not just this tax year, but five years, 10 years down the road. It's a great conversation. It's free, and there's no obligation. So if you're interested, please go to the Annex Wealth Management website, AnnexWealth.com, and hit that Events tab and get yourself signed up. Still to come on the show, is a 401k loan a good thing? How about freezing your credit? You can now do that for free. We'll be talking about that. And also a great piece on Medicare. It's Money Talk Annex Wealth Management on WTMJ. Spreading the wealth every Saturday. Here's more Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. Ron Johnson, our CFP and Senior Financial Planner at Annex Wealth Management, joins us. Welcome, Ron. Thanks for having me, Danny. We had a recent segment where we talked about what to do if you're about to be laid off. And one of the things that came up was if you have a 401k and you leave a company, whether you're fired or you're laid off, you got to pay that back. And I'm scratching my head. I've heard of 401k loans. I guess people do them. Does it make sense? And that's what you're here for. Yeah, let's talk about that a little, Danny. 20% of 401k participants have 401k loans. So this is a thing. You're borrowing from your 401k. Yep. We're about to delve into that if this is a good idea. When you must, it's not a bad idea, I guess. It may be best for short-term liquidity. If you're going to do it for one year or less, it's smarter than a title loan if you're going to a cash store, kind of a thing like that. doesn't affect your credit rating, but I can tell by the look on your face, you're not a fan. No, I, I'm really not. You know, certainly they can function in, in an emergency type situation where you don't have a lot of other options. But you're right on the face of it. It sounds really good. Hey, I can borrow from my savings. I'm going to pay myself the interest instead of paying it to a bank. How is that bad? Well, let's talk about that. And what happens if you're laid off? Well, first of all, that becomes a taxable event unless you have the cash in your pocket to pay that back. That means that you're going to go owe income on that loan balance, plus you're going to owe likely a 10% penalty if you're under age 55. Also, think about it this way, Danny. If you get that 401k loan sitting out there and you get a better job offer, now you got to have that money in your pocket to repay that. Otherwise, again, before you can go to that new company, you got to pay that back or it's a taxable event, possibly a penalty. So this is the case where if you left, you'd need to pay it back. But as a vehicle, are these things good ideas? There's one component that a lot of people aren't aware of, and, and this is kind of interesting. You, you borrow the money, it's a tax-free event, right? right? You don't have to pay tax on that, that loan distribution. But what happens is as you repay it, you're paying that loan back with after-tax dollars. That means that's money that you've already paid tax on that goes back in your 401k. When you withdraw that money when you retire, you're paying tax again. So guess what? On those loan dollars, you paid income tax on it twice. That's tax inefficiency, and that's, right. that's your thing. You're a tax guy, right? Yeah, we yeah. try to avoid that, Danny, if we can. Now, obviously, if you're in a situation where you need money for an emergency, you didn't uh, put together a plan beforehand, and you're, you're faced with either a title loan or this course, not, it's not a bad idea. But what you want to think about, and this is why you plan, is to start looking ahead. Start building that emergency savings account. So if an emergency or an unexpected bill comes up, you have a better way to tackle this. I mean, that's like 101, right? You build up the emergency fund first before anything. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's just basic financial planning, right? You want to put 10 to 12% of your income into retirement. And if you can, if you have the cash flow, you want to put 10 to 12% of your income towards that emergency savings. 
savings fund so you don't have to go down roads like this. Ron Johnson, the CFP and Senior Financial Planner at Annex Wealth Management, is here talking about 401k loans. And I asked, well, why would you do that? If you needed it quickly, wouldn't other sources be better? Would it would a regular loan be or even home equity? Yeah, you know what? I, I'm really a big fan in for a short-term emergency. If you don't have the cash in your pocket, a home equity line of credit can be a very economical way to do this. The rates are based on the prime rate, which right now is very low. There's not a ton of fees associated with these. So if you take it out and you pay it back in six or eight months, the interest expense is not going to be too bad. I think that's a very good course, Danny, if you have that option available to you. So again, 401k loans, about 20% of 401k participants have them. They can be useful. They might not be the best option. There are certain inefficiencies that you should consider. Talk to your financial professional no matter what. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you're faced with a, a financial emergency, it, it pays to talk to a professional, see what your options are, and then you can pick the best route. Ron Johnson is a CFP. He is a senior financial planner at Annex Wealth Management. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Always happy to come. From simple investments to stock advice, back to Money Talk with Dane Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. Team Technology Trust. Talking to Eric Strom, our financial planning specialist at Annex Wealth Management. Normally, we drag you in here about uh, annuities, but this is something different. We're talking about freezing your credit. Why is this a big deal? Well, I will answer that question with a number, $145 million. I know what that is. That was Equifax. That was the number of people that had their data breached with Equifax, right? That's right. About a year ago, something unprecedented happened in the financial security world, which is that $145 million Americans' information was was leaked by Equifax, and this was pretty scary, the level of information that they had on us. It was our full names, not only our current address, but our address history going back many, many years, full social security numbers, in some cases credit card numbers, really everything A to Z that an identity theft criminal would need to open up accounts in your name. So when that happened, you know, it was all over the news, but this is something that everyone has to remember for the rest of our lives, that your information could be out there. We hear about these hacks all the time, and normally it doesn't and normally it doesn't come from somebody trusted like a credit reporting agency. And there are credit reporting agencies, Equifax, Experian, TransUnion. Those are the big three, right? Yes, those are the three major credit bureaus. They have more information on us than we even realize. Than Amazon. I'm surprised that Equifax survived this, but they did because they're still doing this. So the recent news was is Congress passed a law that allows us to freeze our credit from these agencies and we don't have to pay for it. You used to be able to do that, but you, you had to pay for it, right? It was between 3 and $10. That's absolutely right. I've actually been freezing my own credit and my wife's credit going back about five years. And depending on what state you live in, it could cost anywhere from free all the way up to $10. Let me ask this. Why freeze credit in the first place. The main reason that you want to freeze your credit is to prevent criminals from using your personal information to open up new accounts in your name, opening up cell phones in your name, opening up things that require credit checks. Now, it's it's not a, such a big deal if your credit card number gets stolen and maybe there's unauthorized charges on your account. That is a low-level identity theft. Really what we want to prevent are criminals from opening up new accounts in your name, and that's what credit freezes do. So they cannot check your credit. In fact, even you cannot open up new credit as long as you're frozen. So the freeze prevents any new credit from being opened up at all for that social security number. Okay, so you've been doing it for a long time just because you don't want your identity stolen, you don't want this to happen. Are we suggesting that people do this? 
It is a good idea. In the past, you had to pay $10 in the state of Wisconsin. We were on the high end there. And you had to do that three times over, once for TransUnion, once for Equifax, and once for Experian. And then let's say that a few months later, you want to get a new cell phone or you want to open up a credit card at a store to get a discount. You would need to go pay $10 again to temporarily thaw your credit or unfreeze your credit. And so... Over the years, my wife and I, from freezing and thawing our credit, and by the way, I think every penny was worth it, we, you know, we spent hundreds of dollars freezing and unfreezing our credit in order to have that peace of mind to know that a criminal cannot open up new accounts in our names. But now it is becoming free. As of September 21st of this year, you can now freeze and thaw your credit at all three bureaus, no charge. In preparation for this interview, I went to Equifax and I was going to freeze my credit. Got to the website and it says you need to create an account. So I started the account, the whole process, put all my information in, and it asks you those, those typical screener questions. You had a car loan at XYZ, yes. you lived at such an, and it, all mine were none of the above. And I clicked none of the above, and I got the 800 number, and I had to call the 800 number. Pack your patience, ladies and gentlemen, because it was a hassle. Now my account is, quote, under investigation. It's gonna be a little bit of an effort to get this done, I think, or was my experience a little weird? No, your experience is normal, and I'll tell you why. The credit bureaus make a lot of money by taking your information and selling it off in aggregate with other Americans out there just like you and I. And when you institute a credit freeze, they can no longer do that. So the credit bureaus are not thrilled about this uh, legislation. They don't want you to freeze your credit. So when you go to these websites, you'll see things like credit lock. There There are a couple of things, a couple of things that I could pay money for. So none of those are the legal credit freeze. So the law has required all three bureaus to offer this service, which is now free, to freeze your credit. When you do that, you fully shut down access to your credit. They can no longer make money in the way that they traditionally do. So when you go to these websites, they're going to encourage you to do something that's lighter. So maybe a credit lock or whatever that agency is calling it. None of those things offer you the full legal protection. So to get the actual credit freeze, um, one way to do it is to visit the Federal Trade Commission's identity theft website, where they provide direct links to the actual freeze page on each credit bureau's website. So that's one way to circumvent that. Was that my mistake? I went to the wrong part of the website? They don't make it easy, so I don't blame you at all, Danny. And for our clients of Annex, we're actually happy to to give a little guidance on this as well. If this is the kind of thing where it keeps you up at night and just this would give you a really good peace of mind, I believe it really is worth the effort. You look well-rested and you're freezing your credit all the time. That's true. Well, call me paranoid, but I just like to be safe. Eric Strom, financial planning specialist at Annex Wealth Management. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is good stuff. All right. Watch your investments grow with Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. It's Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management for Saturday the 29th. Welcome back, Mandy. Thank you. We keep dragging you in, but thank you. Mandy is our tax planner. You're also a CPA, aren't you? Mm -hmm. And a CFP? And both, yes. Any any other things that we should add in? No, just those. All right, here we go. This is from Ask Annex, which you can access on our website. We love to hear from you. Sandy says, in general, if you're 57 years old and renting, is it better to buy a house or condo at this age or rent? It would not reduce the monthly payment, rent versus house 
house. My thought is, would it be best to keep renting so I don't spend $50,000 of my retirement dollars on a down payment, keep that fifty k to live on in retirement? Am I correct in my thoughts? Dave Spano is here, too. What do you guys think? Well, that's really interesting. And, Mandy, thanks for joining us because it's certainly better than Oswald. We had to move him aside so you could come in and have a chat with us. But that is an interesting conversation. It's something that we have all the time when it comes to financial planning. As respect is to taxes, though, th- those are two different conversations. Right. If you're looking just from a tax standpoint, if you need $50,000, it's going to cost you a lot more than that. You're looking at maybe 75000 now that you're taking from your retirement account. Right. So the taxes of that. So yeah. so let's let's break this down. There is, there's actually three parts. There's a tax question, it's a financial planning question, and then, of course, there's an emotional question. Mm-hmm. So tax perspective, if you take the $50,000 out of a qualified plan, it's going to cost you more. Is there any other tax aspects that we should consider? You know, you used to, if we go back to last year before tax reform, there were some nice tax incentives to itemizing with real estate taxes and mortgage interest, but now most people won't be itemizing. So, you know, from a tax perspective, there's not that incentive anymore for home ownership. Right. So the advantage has gone away there. For as far as a financial planning perspective, what is your opinion on should you rent or buy? You know, it, you know, when you're 57 and you're looking forward, you most mortgages are 30 years. Are you going to be living in that home for 30 years? Most likely based on her age. It may be, maybe not. But what happens in 20 years if you need to move to more of an assisted living? Now you have this house that you have have to try to right. liquidate. Right. You know, from a financial planning move, it really goes to net worth, your assets, your expenses, you know, the whole planning scenario at that point. And I always say there is an economic answer and there's an emotional answer. And the emotional answer is, do you want to stay connected to your home? Number yep. one, that's a big deal. The second part, of course, is do you want to have debt? And the third part of that is if something happens to you, what's going to happen to that property? And, you know, I personally have gone through that is now there's a home to sell or, or prepare and all of these things have to go into it. So there's a lot that goes into it. I think that's a really great question. Thanks, Sandy. Question two, Mike says, we're ready to sell my wife's house in Kentucky. She bought it three years ago with an interest-only mortgage deal. House assessment now 295 k She bought it for 255 k What to expect after we pay the real estate broker's fee of 7%? What is the best way to keep money in our pocket and reduce taxes on the profit? Mandy. Um, if you have a personal residence, you do have a personal residence home sale exclusion. So since it's his wife's house, I'm not sure on their personal situation, but let's just say it was his wife's house. If it's personal residence and you live there for two of the past five years, you can exclude up to $250,000 of gain. And that's assuming, you know, one taxpayer. And again, it's just not how much you paid for it, how much you sold it for. There's other things that go into it, including depreciation and and things that you put into the house as well. And that affects the basis. Mm -hmm. Right. So if she bought it three years ago, has she been living in it this whole time in Kentucky or has she been renting it out? You know, did she do a kitchen remodel? You're correct. That would just increase the cost of the house and reduce the gain. Um, And there's other fees to selling a house as well. So when you go through and we do tax planning with our clients and they look at is there a gain or loss based on the basis now in the house, can they look across other capital gains and losses that they have and can they offset that with a house sale? Right, yeah. So if for some reason you don't qualify to exclude the gain, you could if you have a stock or something else that has a loss, you could sell that to help reduce the tax hit from selling a house with a gain. 
So there's two Ask Annex questions, and again, you can always submit those. Just go to AnnexWealth.com and just find the Ask button. That's tax stuff, Mandy. That's that's your beat. Uh, yep. When do you start getting busy? Oh, right about now. People start thinking about what tax planning they should be doing before year end. We're kind of getting close. And Dave, we should point out that uh, we have a tax profession. We have a whole tax team here. Well, when you talk about know the difference, one of the things I want people to understand is you can go to, to another investment advisor or another broker, and they may not have everybody on the team, estate planners and tax planners. This is something that we do with our clients, and I think it's very important to put that into the entire financial plan and make Make sure that when you're doing that, that it's tied to your investment plan as well. Get professional help with your portfolio. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. It's Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management. Joining me, Deanne Phillips, Director of Client Learning and Development. Ron Johnson is our Senior Financial Planner and a CFP at Annex Wealth Management. You guys, thanks for the cookies. Now, I always say that because <laughs> whenever we have big seminars at our headquarters, there's always a big plate of cookies. And so you packed a couple of conference rooms with a Medicare presentation and you left some cookies. But we thank did. you for that. We got a couple minutes to talk about it. Can you give us the cliff notes? Sure, of course we can. So, you know, when our clients or when anybody hits 64, they start getting inundated with Medicare information in the mail and email and questions that they have because they know this this looming deadline is approaching. So what we decided to do at Annex was host some client-friendly presentations, um, really talking about the ins and outs of here's a basic introduction, the different pieces of Medicare, how do I apply, when do I do this, what are the different parts that I need to think about and common questions. So Ron Johnson, who's with me right now, uh, and I talked about the different parts of Medicare, really starting with that Part A, B, what is Part A, B, and D, and what are the supplements, right? Right. You know, the alphabet soup of Medicare. There are seven months that you have to actually enroll, not not six. Your birthday month counts as a standalone month. And a lot of times we do have people come to us years before and say, I'm concerned about Medicare. No, no, wait, wait, wait. Because the first thing you have to do is sign up for that Part A and B. And there's a seven-month window to do that. It's your birthday month, three months before, three months after for that initial. So you got to get that part A and B signed up for first, and then you can pick a supplemental plan. Yeah. So Deanne, uh, let's talk a little bit about what A and B is. So part A covers your hospital stays, right? So when you're admitted to the hospital, it's going to cover all the costs associated with your care there. Uh, and there's some deductibles and, and there's some um, there's some rules around the benefit period and how much you're going to pay and so forth. But the reality is they're going to cover a lot of it, but there's also going to be a lot of out-of-pocket costs associated with Part A. In addition, Medicare provides what's called Part B. Part B is the part that covers your your general care. Your doctors, right? Yep, your outpatient care. When you have Part A, B, you're going to pay a monthly premium for that, and then Part B is going to cover generally about 80% of your costs. Now, that's really important because a lot of things people don't know is that, uh, well, our FICA taxes paid if we worked those 40 quarters for the Part A. It does not include uh, dental, eye exams, dentures, hearing aids. There's a lot of gaps as we age that are not covered. Right. So that's when we start talking about supplements. You right. want to purchase a supplement to cover what Part A and B doesn't cover. So you have two roads you can follow here. You can do what's called a Medicare Advantage plan. Or you can go with original Medicare, commonly referred to as Medigap. There's big differences between the two, 
But generally, to, to do a quick summary, Dan, Danny, Medicare Advantage is very similar to what we all know as an HMO or a PPO. So you can operate in a network. The premiums are going to be lower, but your out-of-pocket expenses are going to be higher. Like when, a high-deductible plan. Think yeah. of it like that. And when you compare it to Medigap. Medigap is, is really different, meaning that you don't have to operate within a network. Healthcare is not managed, but you're going to have much larger premiums, but hardly any out-of-pocket costs. So there's a big difference between the two, and it, it really depends on the individual on what course is better. So, it does, and their past health history as well. Yes. So remember when you sign up and you're eligible for Medicare initially, there is no pre-existing condition clause. So as long as you sign up on time, and there are major penalties if you don't, not the least of which is they can opt not to insure you, or it can cost more, right? But there are set costs for A and B as long as you sign up on time. And then if you had a pre-existing condition, it doesn't matter. But That's don't right. be late. Don't don't miss it. Right. Now, the one thing we didn't talk about is that hot topic, prescription drug coverage. That is Part D. So Part D covers prescription drug coverage. And, and what that does is it's going to pay a portion of your bill each month, okay? And it's broken down into several phases. Part of that is the infamous donut hole where you're going to have to pay all your out-of-pocket expenses in, in a certain benefit period. Uh, so let's not forget about Part D, and that's incredibly important to have. The key takeaway here is uh, right before you turn 65, you need to sign up for that Part A and B. There's really no decisioning at that point, right? After you get that Medicare card in the mail when you turn 65, you're going to want to then decide, do I want the Advantage-type plan, which is the higher deductible, or the Cadillac-style plan? This is where a, a health insurance advisor can really assist you. And here at Annex, we sit down with our clients, we walk them through the milestones, we make sure they don't miss any of the deadlines, and we put experts in front of them. You guys were just in front of a bunch of people. What would you say the level of understanding is? You know, this is a very, very complex topic. And it's a little scary because it's something that you have to rethink every year. So having a firm on your side, I could just see the relief of them going, oh, you're going to walk me through this, right? Because that is really important. Yeah, I, I would tell you, Danny, that, you know, in your working years, you gave Medicare very little thought, right? Because you had it provided by your employer. So you didn't do any research. The, the level of understanding, I would say, is, is fairly low. Uh, and that's okay. That's why we're stepping in. And there are other complications, Danny, like what do I do if I have a health savings account in HSA? Do I apply if I'm still working? What if I'm not, but my spouse is and I'm on their coverage? So there are a lot of nuances to this. Bottom line, we help clients with this. We do. Good. Ron Johnson, thank you very much. Deanne Phillips, thank you very much. Thanks for As having always, me. Danny, thank you. This is Money Talk Annex Wealth Management, WTMJ. Advice and opinions expressed during Money Talk are solely that of the hosts or guests of Annex Wealth Management and not WTMJ Radio or Scripps Media Incorporated.